So if you have been in Minnesota for a while, or if you're a recent transplant who's getting the hang of things, you understand that there are some things that are distinctly Minnesotan, like claiming that we have the best anything, even claiming like I do that Young Joni's Pizza in Minneapolis has the best pizza ever anywhere in the world, New York pizza be darned, eating casserole or hot dish, not casserole. For every opportunity we can and considering it to be a full meal, because if we're honest, it has cream of mushroom soup. And of course, mushrooms are vegetables. And if you add green beans, you have extra vegetables. And so, of course, that's a complete meal or saying thank you to absolutely everybody all the time. Even the cop who just gave you a ticket for speeding, not taking the last of any food even if it means dividing it beyond what's physically or mathematically possible so that a tiny sliver remains if someone else wants it, which nobody else will claim it, and so we will probably throw it in the trash. Or saying sorry for everything to everybody all the time because apparently we feel very guilty every second of the day. And having the eternal hope that this year is going to be the year that we're going to make it to the Super Bowl. Or the Stanley Cup finals. Every year is our year. We have the team this year. We drafted them, right? There are some things that are just distinctly Minnesotan that we do and it's in our blood and it's ingrained in us. And day after day, we wake up Minnesotan, but there is nothing that is more Minnesotan than Minnesota nice right? Minnesota nice, the term that we've given ourselves to describe how considerate, friendly, and never forget humble we are as a state. Minnesota nice. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we know our own lives, we know that Minnesota nice maybe doesn't extend as far as we think it does. So a few weeks ago, I took a trip down to Sacramento with our denomination to visit one of the covenant churches down there. And I'm not a morning person. Those of you who know me know I'm not a morning person. And I had to wake up at 4 a.m. to catch my flight. And I had a three-hour layover in Phoenix, which it turns out is not enough time to leave the airport, right? So I was in the airport, and I was hungry and tired. And I went to one of those really fine airport dining establishments with the great food and the tables that seat about 20 people where they kind of just tell you to seat yourself. And one half of the table was already full. And so I went as far down to the very last spot in the table as possible. And there were about 12 empty seats, six on each side from me. And so I was sitting there and I had ordered my breakfast. And all of a sudden I look up to see that somebody has chosen to sit in the seat right across from me. And I started seething inside, right? I started seething inside. I was upset. I was frustrated. I wasn't making eye contact. And I definitely started a group chat with my family, right? I said, how dare they? They must not be from Minnesota. Because in Minnesota, you don't do that, right? You don't just invade someone's personal space at 9 a.m. during an airport layover and expect conversation. And it might be a little embarrassing to admit this, but for about 15 minutes, I made no eye contact, no eye contact. The waiter came over to give me my order and I sat and looked straight down like this. And, and I kept like kind of trying to peer out of the corner. Of my eye. Are you trying to make eye contact with me? Oh, good. You're not either. And we ended up talking, but the whole time I was just irritated and frustrated. And I got out of my seat at the end and I paid and, and I headed out and I thought, how dare they invade my personal space? 
And then I got to Sacramento. And I got in an Uber. And I started asking the Uber driver all kinds of questions. Where are you from? How long you been driving Uber? What did you do before you drove Uber? And I ended our conversation by saying, I'm so sorry for all the questions. I'm from Minnesota and we're just really friendly. And the entire trip, every time I would meet someone who wasn't from Minnesota, I would say something along, along the lines of, I'm from Minnesota. We're just really friendly there. Now, the irony is not lost on me. The irony of the difference between the airport meal and the taxis and the Ubers and the coffee shops in Sacramento of of saying that we're super friendly, but then people invade our space and, and we don't feel it anymore. And I'm not alone in recognizing the disconnect between who we say we are and what we actually do when it comes to Minnesota nice. In fact, I've had many conversations with a Minnesota transplant explaining that when somebody says that's interesting, that doesn't mean that's good. In fact, it means the opposite, right? That's interesting means interesting. It doesn't mean, wow, interesting. That's so fascinating, right? It's the opposite. And that when somebody in Minnesota says to you, we should definitely hang out sometime, that actually means please don't ever take me up on that offer. So a growing number of people are starting to describe Minnesota nice as Minnesota ice, explaining the icy, difficult to break through exterior that Minnesotans often have. But I have some good news today, and it's this. That's not entirely our fault. That's always good news, right? It's not entirely our fault. You see, there was a a recent study, a recent set of articles that NPR did on Minnesota NICE and Minnesota ICE and what it actually means. And in the midst of those articles, a retired professor from Gustavus Adolphus College, a professor of Scandinavian studies, Roger McKnight, wrote in, and he was aghast that NPR hadn't explained the origins of Minnesota NICE. It was because, he explains, most early Minnesotans hailed from the frozen tundras of Norway and Sweden, where their traditional culture was for centuries based on the concept of one people, one language, one religion. He said Swedes' lifelong friends were chosen from among people they went to school with and their kinship group. An individual made friends slowly, but they were friends for life in the truest sense of the term, for life. In that same series, a pastor named Steve Harris wrote an opinion piece called A Newcomer Can Find Welcome in Minnesota, eventually. And he said this. He said, Minnesotans are reservedly friendly to newcomers. They won't throw you a party because you've arrived, but they'll drop by a few days or weeks later with a pan of bars. They're a bit stealthy, lurking on the edges of deeper friendship until they see if you're going to stick it out to see what you're made of. And here's my favorite line. He said, friendships in Minnesota are more crockpot than microwave. They're more crockpot than microwave. Well, all throughout this Minnesota ice series, we are taking on our crockpot tendencies as Minnesotans. And we're wondering what it might look like if we were intentional about building community and being really good neighbors. Now, far from this being one of those fluff series that you do after Easter so that everybody can catch their breath, 
this might be one of the more important conversations that we ever have as a church. Let's think about it for a second. So our mission as a church is to make more people more like Jesus in authentic community. And now I wasn't an English major in college, but I venture to guess that we can't do that if we're not around more people in authentic community and being more like Christ in those moments, right? And so if we want to fulfill what we believe God has called us to as a church, then we have to figure out what it looks like to be around more people in authentic communities while being more like Christ in those conversations. Well, here's the truth. Scripture has a lot to say about the people that surround us. And in fact, if you are following along in your notes and quote sheet, there's a place to write this down. God cares about how we treat our neighbors. God cares about how we treat our neighbors. When it comes to neighbors alone, in the ESV translation of the Bible, there are over 105 times in 98 verses that the word neighbor is used. And most of those times, it's used in conjunction with a command of how your neighbors should or should not be treated. Here are just a few of those 105 times. I won't list them all. This isn't BuzzFeed. I'm not giving you a listicle, right? Here are just a few of those times that that's used. Exodus 20:16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 2017, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 22:26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it before the sun goes down. Leviticus 6:2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, there is some retribution to be made. Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Leviticus 25.14, and if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong each other. Deuteronomy 15.2, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. 24.10, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. Proverbs 3.9, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. 11.12, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding remains silent. Or in modern translation, don't post on next door. Proverbs 26, 18 through 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Jeremiah 22, 13. Woe to him who built his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So like I said, that was just a small part of the 105 times that God gives commandments regarding our neighbors. And so does God care about how we treat our neighbors? Yes. 
and perhaps one of the most significant moments in the entire Bible of what it means to be a neighbor and how we neighbor is found in the Gospels. And so if you have your Bible with you today, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to send you home with one. We have Bibles at either of the tables and back, and please take that as our free gift to you. So this conversation that we're about to read in the Gospel of Mark is actually found in three out of the four Gospels in the Bible. And it occurs right after Jesus had already been tested twice on two really important matters. The first was paying taxes to Caesar, and the second was the resurrection of the body. By the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he was tested, the political and religious elite of Jesus' time. And so in Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34, Mark tells the exchange that Jesus had like this. He says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, this lawyer, or in some of the other translations, this scribe, was responsible for determining what the most important laws were for an observant Jew to follow. In the Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament, there were 613 separate commandments that had been given to God, by God, to his people. 365 of those commandments were what we would call negative commandments, the don't do this commandments. And then 248 of those commandments were positive commandments. They were the do this instead commandments. And of course... It would be impossible for any of us in this room, I'm guessing, to perfectly follow all 613 laws all of the time. And so the role of the lawyers and the scribes in the first century was to determine which laws were heavy or had to be followed and which ones were light or could be broken if a heavier law was more important. It's like if your family was starving on the Sabbath, can you break the Sabbath in order to feed your family? That was the role of the scribes, the lawyers of that time. So when he asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law, or which one is more important, as it says in Matthew, he's seeking to determine which laws of all of the 613 commandments are heavy, which ones have to be followed under any circumstance. So Jesus' answer is actually kind of interesting then. 
He starts with one that would have been entirely too obvious to his audience because they repeated it every day as a part of a daily ritual prayer that they did called the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy 6.5. And so Jesus answers, the most important one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you can almost feel or picture the the crowd just nodding along. He's answered wisely. He's answered the one commandment that they repeat to themselves day in and day out. The one that they tie on their doorsteps. The ones they repeat to their children. You can almost feel the crowd nodding. And yet, Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 31 by repeating a passage that's found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The second is this, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then the scribe repeats back to him, you are right Teacher, you have truly said that he is one, that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So here's a question for us today. What if Jesus meant what he said? What if Jesus meant what he said? You see, often we take this passage and all the other passages where Jesus talks about neighbors and we turn our neighbor into a person halfway across the world or our enemy or somebody who's more distant than the people within walking distance from us. But what if Jesus meant what he said? What if Jesus wants us to love our actual neighbors. And when I talk neighbors, I don't only mean the people who live in the houses that surround you, but what if Jesus wants you to love your actual neighbors in your workplace, which they call the new neighborhood because of the amount of time that we all spend there, or the parents who sit next to you on the bleachers, or the students and the families that are a part of your classroom, or the people who live in your apartment building, or the people who go to the same gym as you? What if Jesus wants us to love our actual neighbors? You see, a problem starts to happen when we take that too broadly. We start finding excuses for not loving the people who are in proximity to us because we're already doing it right? And so we start finding excuses for why it doesn't need to happen, right, in our immediate proximity. And through, so throughout this series, we want to focus on loving our neighbors who are immediately in front of us, on loving our neighbors who are right next to us, not because our global neighbors don't matter because they matter deeply to us, but because everything in our lives starts locally. And Jesus saw this matter, this matter of loving our neighbors, as absolutely critical to what it meant to love God. 
So when the scribe says that it's more important to love God and love your neighbor than it is to sacrifice, which was a crucial part of faith practice in the first century, Jesus doesn't correct him or chastise him. And in fact, it's the opposite. When he says that it's more important to love God and love your neighbors than it is to do anything else in the temple, Jesus sees him as wise. And he tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And so what would it look like for us to put ourselves in the same position as the scribe? Here's a core truth. In order to love God, you need to love your neighbor and vice versa. In order to love God, you need to love your neighbor and vice versa. We can't both love and praise God and then despise people that are made in God's image. If we had to take everything that the Bible has to say about our neighbors, everything the Bible has to say about welcoming or loving or respecting our neighbors, everything it has to say about welcoming people into our lives and our homes, and we had to boil it all down into one word, that one word would be inclusion. Because as followers of Jesus, we're called to be radically inclusive people, and we should be quick to include other people into our lives. And so we find as we do this that increasingly loving and serving our neighbors leads us to increasingly love and serve God. And the opposite is true. The more that we love and serve God, the more that that love and service and honor overflows onto the people who are closest to us. And so these two things are tied together. These two commandments are tied together. And that's why it's called the great commandment. This means even loving our neighbors who are hard to love. It means even loving the one who borrowed your snowblower and didn't return it in time for the April snowstorm that we keep having. It also means loving the neighbor that gets on next door, the neighborhood app, the moment that you drive too quickly through the neighborhood, writing that you drove like a madman, or the moment that you drive too slowly through the neighborhood, writing that you drove suspicious and they have concerns. It also means loving the coworker who always heats up fish uncovered in the company microwave. Or the student or the family in your classroom that you always get emails about. It means loving the fellow gym goer that always hogs the machine or my personal pet peeve doesn't wipe it down after they use it. Right? It means loving the people who are hard for us to love. And loving our neighbor, it's a crucial part of loving God. It's so crucial that Jesus is the first one in the history of all of the laws to actually tie those two together. He's the first one that when asked what's the greatest commandment says to love God and to love your neighbor. He's the first one who revolutionary says these two cannot exist without the other. It's crucial to who we are as people. Now we know that this is hard. We know that this is hard, and we want to help. And so over the course of this series, we are inviting you to take some steps forward in getting to know your neighbor. Because we all know that we can't even begin thinking about how to love our neighbors if we don't even know who they are, right? It gets a lot harder when we don't know who our neighbors are to actually take step forwards in figuring out what it looks like for us to love and invite and include our neighbors, And so one of the resources that we are recommending throughout this series is this book called The Art of Neighboring. It's a really good starting place. It's a really good starting place. In fact, it's it's such a good starting place that we're going to have a summer book study on it. 
And so if that interests you, you can sign up for that out at the resource table. But today I actually want to draw your attention to something that the authors, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon, created that we think is a good resource for us as a church. So I want to draw your attention to it. It's right inside your bulletin. It's a sheet that looks like a bingo card, and it says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Here's what we want you to do throughout this entire series. We are inviting you to get to know your neighbors. We're inviting you to get to know your neighbors. For some of you guys that already host National Night Out, which that is a spiritual art and a calling, you may already know every single neighbor and their kids' birthdays and their favorite candy. And if that's you, we want you to consider a different place. Maybe it's your workplace or a team that your kid is on. Maybe it's the gym that you go to, anywhere where you spend a significant amount of time with people that you don't know yet. And here's what we want you to do. So in the middle of the chart, you're going to write down your name. It says you are here. That's for you. You write down your name. And then there's eight other boxes that surround it. And we want you to write down three things in each of those boxes as you get to know your neighbors. Per house or per cubicle or per desk. Write down the name of the person. And if you can do first and last name, that's awesome. If you can only do first name, that's okay too. I said when I, when I looked at this map, right, it was really easy for me to write down the nicknames of my neighbors because I've given them all nicknames, right? But I don't know their name, so it makes it really awkward when I see them because you can't call them by their nickname. So write down their actual name. Write down their actual name. And then as you get to know your neighbors, We also want you to write down some relevant information about them, some relevant information, something that you couldn't learn just by looking out your window, right? Something that you couldn't learn. So not they have yellow roses on their sidewalk. We want you to write down something of where they work or what they do or where they went to school, some information about them. And then finally, as you get to know them more and more, write down some in-depth information that you would only know after you connected with them. Maybe this is something about their career plans or their dreams. Maybe it's something about who they say God is. Maybe it's something about what they fear. Maybe it's something about their spiritual beliefs and practices. Write down something meaningful to their lives. And as you do this, you're going to more and more get to know your neighbors. Now, if you are already feeling like that is wild to pick out eight of them, let me share these statistics with you. The folks behind the art of neighboring, when they do this with congregations and with groups all over the United States, find this. About 10% of people can fill out the names of all eight of their neighbors. 10%. About 3% can fill out one relevant fact about them. 3%. And less than 1% of the people they do this with, can fill out any meaningful information about their neighbors. Now, here at ECC, I know us all well enough to know that we are above average and so humble, right? That we are above average. And so I want to invite us throughout this series to use this as a tool for us to be above average, for us to use this as a tool so that as the weather heats up, You can keep it with you and you can begin to get to know your neighbors and take the first step of just learning their names and then learning where they work and then learning something deeper about them and having conversations. 
And if for you, it would be helpful for you to have it on your fridge, we have a magnet version too. And you can put it on the side of your fridge so that when your neighbors come over, they don't see it, right? We're going to make sure it's not awkward for you. But, but if you want a place where you can stash it, or if you're going to do it in your workplace, maybe you put it in your backpack when you head to the office. And teens, we are inviting you guys in on this too. And so maybe you could get to use it to know the people who have the desks around you. Or maybe you could use it to get to know the kids that are in class with you or the kids that are in theater on your soccer team, somebody you don't know yet. It's just a little bit of encouragement and push for us to move forward in this. Now, we know that this can be scary. In full self-disclosure on the Myers-Briggs, I'm 100% extroverted. I didn't answer one question as an introvert, right? So we know that for everybody who's not me, this is incredibly scary, right? It is incredibly scary and vulnerable to get to know your neighbors. And so here's some good news for you. The good news is this, that God actually goes before you when you do this. That God goes before you. In fact, throughout this series, we're looking at the Gospels. And we're honing in on the stories where Jesus shows us what it's like to be a really good neighbor. Where Jesus shows us what it's like to go and talk to strangers and become friends with them and invite them to be a part of a family. And so we get to, throughout this series and throughout the times that we decide to use this as a tool to get to know the people around us, we get to follow Jesus' example. We get to follow the example of somebody who did it perfectly and invited us to follow in his footsteps. Now, we also know that this can be incredibly difficult because our lives are so busy. So here's a question for you, and you can write it down on your note sheet. How can we create margin? So that the great commandment can be the greatest priority. Here's the truth. If we don't have margin in our schedule, if there's not one second or one minute or one hour that we can claim back, we can't even begin to think about what it might look like for us to talk to, let alone get to know and love our neighbors. And so if our days are so tightly packed that doing anything else sounds like a chore, we can't even take the first step. And so we have to learn how to create margin. I have to be honest, for me, it's going to be cutting down my Netflix time. I'm really good at Netflix, right? And so it's going to be cutting down my Netflix time and maybe being an episode behind so that I can invest more in the things that really matter in my walk with God. So what would it look like for us to claim margin. You see, a lot of this can be really simple, small changes. It can be like going down to the mailbox when our neighbors are there instead of watching out the window until they leave. I know I'm not the only one in this room that does that, right? So it could look like us going down to the mailbox, even though our neighbors are down there and getting the mail at the same time and saying hi and introducing ourselves and learning more about them. It could be, since the weather is getting nicer, that instead of us pulling into our garage and shutting the door behind us practically before we turn the car off, what if we were intentional to just get outside for a few minutes, to go for a walk around the neighborhood, or just enjoy the spring that we have? What if we sat in common areas where we could be seen and have conversations, like sitting in the company break room or the cafeteria for lunch instead of going back to our desk immediately? Or what would it look like if we sat on the front porch of our house instead of the back porch or sat in the common rooms of our apartments? 
Let's be people who are creating more margin so that we can be more intentional about knowing and loving our neighbors. Sometimes, too, it looks like claiming the little moments. That when we pass by someone in our office or pass by someone at the gym, that we actually say hi. Right? That we actually engage in a conversation. And we're going to do this together as a church. So you're not alone in doing this. We're going to do this together. Because can you imagine for a second what would happen if everybody who comes to ECC committed over these next five weeks that we're doing this series to create margin in our lives to love God and love our neighbors? Can you imagine if you got to deeply know over the next five weeks, eight more people with eight unique stories and eight unique hopes and fears where you had an opportunity to speak life-giving words and serve and love them over the next five weeks? Can you imagine if we had a reputation here in Shoreview and in each of our cities of being the friendliest church people on the block? Can you imagine the ripple effect? Can you imagine how many people would feel like they're known and seen and heard and loved and cared about? Can you imagine that? I mean, it's astounding to think about what could happen. It's astounding to think about how differently our lives and our neighborhoods and our communities could look like in just five weeks if we committed to this. And so we're going to invite you to do that throughout this series. There's this story of how this happens that I absolutely love. And I love it so much that I included it in your recommended resources if you have 30 minutes this week to check it out. It's a short documentary that's called Godspeed, The Pace of Being Known. And you can find it on Vimeo and watch it for yourself because it will absolutely blow you away. Godspeed is a story about a pastor named Matt. And Matt and his wife get invited to study in St. Andrew, Scotland, which if you're a pastor, N.T. Wright teaches there. That's like the big deal, right? So he moves to Scotland with his wife, and they begin their studies, and soon they find that they need money. And so he takes a job in St. Andrew's as a parish assistant at a local church, and on the first day of work, he walks into the church. And he says to the pastor, he says to his boss, he says, where's my office? pastor's like, your office? He's like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Where's your office? He's like, my office. And he takes Matt outside and he points at the street and he says, start walking. Start walking. Because he doesn't have an office. What he does instead is he goes and he talks to people and he's in the community and he's eating lunch and he's talking to people in shops and he's going to people's houses and he's just getting to know people. And so Matt begins this practice. And he says, you know, I used to always think that if I wanted to find true community, I might have to leave the United States. But he also says, I didn't really want to, right? Because there's something about being safe that feels a little vulnerable when you have to step out of it. And so Matt begins walking, getting to know the local parish. And then eventually he moves on to be a pastor in another small Scottish town called Methlick. And Methlick, as one of the guys in the documentary describes it, is the last town on the line. He says there's A towns, B towns, and C towns. Methlick is B999, right? It's like the last town on the line. And so Matt gets there, and he starts doing what he had done in St. Andrews. He just gets out, and he meets people. And he meets a guy who's been in the community for 60-plus years. 
And as he talks to him, this guy is saying, who owns every house? Who owns every business? How long their family has been there? What struggles their family has had to overcome? This guy in the community knows every single person. And so Matt eventually moves back to the United States and he tries to replicate it in Washington State. And he says that, that it's hard. He says, but this is how Jesus earned people's trust. This is how Jesus earned people's trust. He risked being known. He risked being known. And N.T. Wright has this to say in the documentary. He says, it's a very rich world, but it's a very vulnerable world. And to do any of the neighboring that we're talking about over the next five weeks, there is going to be vulnerable moments. There's going to be uncomfortable conversations. There's going to be steps forward that are going to feel hard, but we're inviting you to do it with us because we think it matters. Because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the singular greatest commandment? He gave two. He said to love God and love your neighbors. And so we're inviting you in this series to follow a God who went before us to teach us how to do this. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look specifically at what that looks like to love our kids and teens, to love the teams that we're on and that surround us, what it looks like for us to love our neighbors in our direct neighborhood, what it looks like in specific moments for us to do what Jesus commanded us to do. And it's a great invitation. And so let's pray as the worship team comes back up. God, thank you. Thank you that you go before us to prepare the way for us to neighbor well. Thank you that as we do it, God, that we don't go alone. God, that this isn't a solo exploration. We thank you that you go with us and you go before us and you prepare the way for the conversations that need to happen. And so, God, I pray that you would just bless this as we go. God, that you would bless our efforts to be a good neighbor. That in the midst of the awkward and the hard and the scary, that you would be there reminding us that this is valuable, important work. In your name we pray. Amen.